Hey folks, it's Jared. Alexia Bulagi is your host and editor today, and she's joined by Christian Bruger and John Stockbruger to discuss the militarization dilemma in the Western Indian Ocean. We are still looking for additional audio editors. We're happy to provide you some very basic training materials and instruction in a low-stress environment. So if you're interested in finding a way to contribute to SimSec and add to your resume and personal skill set, please send us an email with your resume to ccontrol at simsec.org. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pot of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And on that note, I'll turn it over to Kimbersman. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Hello, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. Today, I'm joined by Christian Berger and John Stockberger, and we are going to be discussing their latest piece, Maritime Security and the Western Indian Ocean's Militarization Dilemma. Welcome to both of you. Could you please first introduce yourselves to our audience, please? Yes, hello there. Uh, I'm Christian Bruegel. I'm a professor in international relations at the University of Copenhagen. I'm Jan Stockberger. I'm a visiting assistant professor at the moment at Brown University, uh, working also on international relations. Thanks a lot to both of you. As a reminder, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we may be associated. So first, to begin this interview, could you please talk to us about the genesis of this article? Why and how did you come up with this subject? Sure, I, I, can, I can start off. Um, six years ago, Christian, I published a paper in the Rosie Journal in which we basically analyzed the state of maritime security in the Western Indian Ocean, right? And um, both of us felt that, you know, a lot of things had changed since then, and so it was time to kind of re-evaluate and, like, recheck uh, uh, the situation. And, you know, what we did find out was basically that, yes, a lot of things have changed, and that the major um, problems and issues facing the region are not the same that they were, like, you know, six years ago. So that's what we've been writing about in this, in this new paper. And, you know, Christian has been traveling a lot to the, to the region, to the Western Indian Ocean. So it's like a really good and like in-depth understanding of the issues and, you know, like problems facing the region at the moment. Thank you very much, uh, Jen, for this explanation. Maybe we could start by giving a definition of what we mean by maritime security and what it encompasses. And I know no one more relevant for this kind of attempt than you, Christian Berger. So could you please help us with that? Yeah, thank you very much for the question. Indeed, I've been writing a little bit here and there on the concept of maritime security and also how to understand it. I think what is very important here, firstly, is that there's no global or universal understanding of what maritime security is. It is very much a perspective question, a question of uh, positionality from where you look at it. So an understanding of maritime security certainly looks different from the United States than it does from a small island state uh, such as Seychelles. So that is quite important. In my recent work, uh, largely with Tim Edmonds of the University of Bristol, we have come to settle on an understanding of maritime security where we distinguish three different kind of dimensions. And the first one is an interstate dimension. 
And here we're talking about power projection, we're talking about interstate disputes, but also about gray zone warfare, which is increasingly becoming important. The second dimension is extremist violence and terrorism. And the third one, what we call blue crime. That is different kinds of expression of transnational organized crime at sea. Piracy is clearly the most uh, prominent here. We're also talking about smuggling and uh, environmental crimes such as illegal fishing. And that is very much also the understanding of maritime security that underlies our analysis in the in the paper. Thanks a lot for this explanation on the subject, which is key to understand what will come uh, further. So to dive into the subject, could you give us, Jan, now uh, an idea of what the different maritime security challenges in the Western Indian Oceans are? What were the dynamics in the past few years and where do we stand now? Um, yeah, th that, that's a fantastic question. I think like, one of the major developments really is the decline of piracy of Somalia, right? Um, that was kind of what like, triggered the international engagement in the region uh, back in 2008-2009. Um, but we haven't seen a major piracy attack uh, off the coast of Somalia since basically 2012. Um, pirates still operate in the region, right? So they are still there, um, but kind of like they, they no longer threaten uh, shipping to the degree that they used to be. So piracy is still a problem, but it has been successfully suppressed for the time being by international leagues. But we have seen that like actors or states in the region pay a lot of attention to other issues and maritime crimes. And that includes illegal fishing and uh, drug trafficking through the uh, Indian Ocean, especially from Afghanistan to East Africa and the Middle East, uh, and also illegal fishing, which is a main, uh, major problem in the waters, uh, especially in East Africa, uh, and most importantly, uh, in the waters of uh, Somalia. There's also the continuing threat of terrorism or terrorism-related activities. Um, I think the most prominent example in recent years is the, the terrorist attack on uh, Maldives law enforcement uh, agencies in 2020. And we also see conflict spillover. Um, in Mozambique, for example, rebels have attacked ports and coastal infrastructures in recent years. The Houthi rebels uh, in Yemen, they have attacked uh, shipping, um, especially shipping uh, related to the Arab coalition that fights in the civil war in Yemen. We also see many interstate disputes and geopolitical uh, rivalries and competition. This includes like, you know, maritime territorial disputes between Kenya and uh, Somalia, but also between Britain and Mauritius or the Chagos Islands, uh, which currently host a US naval base. And then there are attacks on shipping, like gray zone attacks, um, that are part of like the Israeli-Iranian uh, shadow war. Uh, we've also seen attacks and sabotage acts by suspected Iranian forces in the Strait of Hormuz, um, which, as you know, is like a major shipping line, uh, lane for oil. Uh, and then we see like more and more naval activity in the region to kind of help police the waters and, and to kind of address these crimes, which is like really great you know, to help stabilize the region. But it could also lead to like new problems uh, and competition that kind of affect stability in the region. 
Thanks a lot, Jan. Now, to continue further and give a clear picture of the context to our auditors, would you mind, Chris, talking about the main countries involved in the Western Indian Ocean and what are their interests uh, in the region? Yeah, absolutely. There has been quite a remarkable shift, actually, in attention uh, on the Western Indian Ocean. So the region does not look like it used to look like 10, 10 years ago where everything was about Somali piracy. Uh, we can clearly see here that uh, all of the major naval powers now take an interest in the Western Indian Ocean. And that's to some degree new in terms of how they take an interest uh, in the region. Often we think of the Western Indian Ocean as a marginal region, but that has clearly changed and uh, this new attention clearly uh, stands for, for a major development as well. And it's largely because of the turn to thinking in terms of the Indo-Pacific. Now the Western Indian Ocean is part of a new, larger strategic theater. And while much of the attention was initially on uh, Southeast Asia or the Pacific, this is now also having a major effect on, uh, on the Western Indian Ocean region. And we see this, for instance, uh, in the European Union and their new interest in the Indo-Pacific and their announcement that uh, the Western Indian Ocean would now be an area of interest where they would want to establish a permanent naval presence. But quite obviously, Russia, for instance, uh, has engaged in the region much more substantially. China now has a naval base in Djibouti, which is first overseas base after all. And uh, let's not forget, it's also a major theater for the United States there. So there is quite a substantial shift in attention. And uh, what we're trying to lay out in the paper is that this is actually quite problematic in different ways. And uh, Jan can tell us a little bit more about that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. of course, you talk about it uh, in depth in your article. But to give a brief uh, idea to our auditors, could you please describe us the geopolitical situation of the region and mainly uh, how political instability affects uh, the challenges at sea? Yeah, great. Uh, that, that, that's a really good question. I think we have to be mindful of the fact that the region needs more international um, support, right, uh, to protect its waters, right? Uh, many states in the region simply don't have large navies or coast guards to protect their waters. So they basically need all the help they can get, right? Whether it's like capacity building or like actually external naval forces helping to police uh, these waters, which are like so important for like international trade. The problem here is that, um, you know, many of these external actors are not just there to help the region or to address maritime crimes such as piracy or uh, drug trafficking or illegal fishing, right? As, you know, as Christian pointed out, like you know, the Indian Ocean or the, the Western Indian Ocean is not part of the Indo-Pacific, which means that you know states or like the external naval powers want to like establish a geostrategic presence in the region and kind of secure the shipping lanes uh, primarily against uh, their rivals. So that includes, you know, mainly like, you know, the, the kind of the coalition led by the United States and the European Union 
uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, China, uh, uh, which also, as Christian pointed out, is kind of establishing a naval presence in the region. So again, like the problem is that these external actors basically import geopolitical tensions in the region, right, which are, you know, they were not there before, right? They are imported into the region by the presence of um, yeah, external actors, and we believe that this could have like a negative impact on the overall maritime security situation in the region, right? Especially in that it undermines um, cooperation on maritime security. I mean, I'll give you like an, an example of how this could look like. Um, like if you want to address maritime crimes, external navies need to coordinate the activities. They need to share information, intelligence, and so on. But the question is, will the American and the Chinese navies do that? Will they cooperate and work together to address maritime crimes? That's a major problem. The other problem is that you know, like many smaller states could be really dragged into these rivalries uh, between the US, China, and also other states. For example, they could be forced to choose and you know, pick a site. This has not happened yet, but it's definitely a major concern in the region uh, for many smaller states. And we have already seen how this really affects um, states in Southeast Asia, who are like, really worried that at some point they might have to choose between the United States or China. So this is like a major problem that affects the region and we think will uh, intensify in the coming years. Okay, so both of you have made a great job at explaining the challenges. So now we'll turn to the core concept and key concept of uh, your article, which is the militarization dilemma. Could you explain this concept to us and how it is a real challenge to maritime security in the region? Absolutely, I can do that. So basically describing is um, the concept of the militarization element is a situation in which smaller states rely on external military support and engagement to protect their borders, right? But at the same time, this reliance on external support and military engagement makes these states and the broader region vulnerable and risks, as I said, importing geopolitical tensions into the region. So basically that these um, tensions and competition between like major powers could undermine cooperation in the region to protect the regional waters and to fight maritime crimes such as piracy and drug trafficking to address you know, gray zone uh, attacks and so on. This is basically why this is a dilemma for the re for, for like smaller states or that you know the, the region more broadly. On the one hand, right, they rely on external military support, but on the other hand, more and more external military engagement by external great powers and, and navies also risks undermining cooperation and kind of risks importing tensions into the region. And then these tensions could in the end undermine efforts and could undermine cooperation to address key maritime security challenges. One way to think about it, like about the militarization dilemma, is that it captures the impact of security competition between major powers on smaller states and maritime security cooperation more broadly. Right. So while the security dilemma basically captures the idea that you know, external actors compete for their core interests um, to like you know, protect their survival and their core interests in the region. But the militarization dilemma basically affects how like smaller states 
deal with these great powers and with the external military presence, right? Because they depend on external military support, right? That's a major opportunity for them. But at the same time, it risks like dragging them into the uh, security competition between the external actors, and it might undermine cooperation to address many of the other security challenges, maritime security challenges that um, affect the region. Yes, absolutely. So I think this conceptualization is very uh, interesting and fascinating to study and useful to encapsulate the tension that is uh, at stake in the region. This situation specific to the Western Indian Ocean is uh, very challenging, but can we learn from and compare with other geographical settings and geopolitical settings in the world to try to uh, maybe find ways to address the issue or learn from it? I think what we're looking at here is a, is a general dynamic, and we can really see this across the board, uh, different regions that we, are, that we are looking at, that maritime security is increasingly about employing naval forces, military forces for geopolitical interests. And that is new. Uh, that, is, uh, that hasn't been like this uh, five, six years ago, there was always the trend towards, but uh, now the, the dynamics are clearly changing. Uh, let me tell you also a little bit uh, on where we found this uh, militarization dilemma for the first time. It is a very practical challenge for, I would say, all smaller countries in the Indian Ocean, but also the, the Atlantic and the, and the Pacific. And originally, what triggered our discussion was I was in uh, December, I was in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Seychelles, and I gave a talk about the Indo-Pacific and uh, what it might mean for, uh, for Seychelles. And I was alerting them that it might be problematic that so many naval forces are now operating and everyone wants to open a naval base in Seychelles uh, and so on. And then a junior diplomat, uh, she raised her hand and she basically said, but isn't that fantastic? So many naval forces, they can help us in protecting our exclusive economic zone. We cannot do it ourselves. And Evola, there is the dilemma. And all smaller countries will be facing this situation. And we're actually currently working on our follow-up piece where we're looking at how this plays out in the broader uh, Indo-Pacific. So stay tuned. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year, uh, that analysis will also be available. Thank you. I, I, I will wait for it uh, indeed. So now in the face of these uh, challenges to maritime security, you argue that institutions are key, yet most of them are not able to mitigate the geopolitical competition in the region, only two of them, uh, you cite uh, the shared awareness and the deconfliction mechanism and the contact group on piracy of the coast of Somalia could do so. Could you uh, explain to us why and uh, the importance of institutions and why most of them are not uh, adapted to the challenges uh, at stake? Yeah, that's a really important question, uh, really. Um, so... The way we think about it is that institutions don't really like help us to like overcome the militarization dilemma or competition in the region more broadly. But they're really important to kind of make sure that states maintain a certain level of cooperation to tackle kind of joint threats and challenges like piracy, drug trafficking, illegal fishing, but also like you know, 
challenges related to climate change, for instance, right? So the idea is basically that institutions are really important to kind of maintain cooperation, that competition and, you know, the militarization dilemma does not derail from, you know, the region and external actors from tackling other challenges. So for the Western in the ocean, this means like we really need to strengthen um, cooperation, not only between external naval actors like the US, China, the European Union, but also between these external actors and smaller states in, in the region. And also with like, you know, regional organizations like the African Union. So it's really about like you know, fostering a dialogue on maritime security and broader geopolitical and geostrategic challenges that face the region, right? The problem basically is that at the moment, um, that, you know, there are many institutions dealing with maritime security, right? But many of them, or most of them, are very technical, right? They have a very narrow focus, mainly on like, you know, capacity building and uh, information sharing. They don't really address like, you know, geopolitical tensions, right? They're not really a forum where kind of states um, discuss broader issues and challenges. And we think that the only institutions that are broad enough to bring together different states, but also provide a, a space for like broader geopolitical discussions are really uh, uh, shaped and uh, the contact group on piracy uh, of the coast of Somalia. Thank you. So my next question uh, is obviously what makes the shared awareness and deconfliction mechanism and the contact group on the piracy uh, of the coast of Somalia so relevant to deal with uh, these geopolitical challenges? Could you give us some background history, their main goal and actors, as well as uh, the strengths and weaknesses of these institutions to face the challenges of maritime security? Both of these uh, organizations are actually super fascinating entities. They're remarkable in, in several ways. So both Shade uh, as well as the contact group, they came out of the need to coordinate the fight against piracy. So they were born in 2008. Uh, initially, they were rather small initiatives, but they grew substantially with the, the growing engagement. At some point of time in the contact group, there were over uh, 80 states, uh, international organizations, experts, uh, and so on participating at many, many of the plenary meetings uh, myself uh, as well. And uh, the contact group is uh, literally a diplomatic mechanism that allows to form a consent on the situation at sea. And shade is the military version of this. There's a reason why it's called deconfliction, because originally there, there was the risk that so many naval forces are now operating in the region, you need to have some sort of coordination mechanism. What is super fascinating about both of these uh, bodies is that they have been very flexible, very adaptable, and produce what we call in the debate uh, experimental governance. So they are trying things out and uh, they change and figure out whether they work or, uh, or not and so on. And that's, of course, also part of the reason why both of these bodies are still there. Let's not forget decline of Somali piracy. The last major successful attack took place in 2012. That is now 10 years ago. And to some degree, you could have imagined that both of these bodies would uh, die out. But the opposite is the case. They've been reinventing themselves. In particular, Shade has gradually looked into other issues than, than piracy. The contact group 
took a little bit longer, but finally this year uh, in February, it was decided it shall now be renamed into the contact group on illicit maritime activities in the Western Indian Ocean. And that provides a large opportunity now, a policy window for ensuring that not only other issues than piracy are on the agenda, but that we're also seeing the geopolitical importance of both of these bodies in handling the militarization dilemma, but quite obviously also in ensuring that maritime insecurity is being reduced in the region. So I really would like to encourage all of the uh, listeners to have a look at Shade and the contact group, because it tells us that even under difficult situations, global powers can cooperate. China, Russia, India, everyone is uh, contributing uh, to, to, to both of these uh, institutions, and they are core instruments for, for achieving a global consent on what to do and uh, what to agree on. Thanks a lot to both of you for these uh, fascinating insights and for having deployed the main challenges that you tackle in your uh, article that and encourage uh, the listeners to look at and to read because it gives a lot of uh, insight both for research but also um, it is very operational. So now my last question to conclude, I think we cannot ignore the current situation and I am uh, wondering about how the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine could further affect the region, complexify the relations between actors and further destabilize maritime security. So maybe uh, could you give us your perspective uh, on the challenges? So Russia is obviously like a really important actor globally, but also in the region, both military and diplomatically, economically. I think like we should not expect any Russian military adventures into the Western Indian Ocean, right? Uh, the Russians have their hands full in, in, in Ukraine, right? Uh, the Navy is currently bottled up in the uh, in the Black Sea because Turkey has closed the Bosporus Strait. So don't think about you know that the Russians will come into the Western Indian Ocean. It's not going to happen for, uh, in the next you know in the near future, even in the medium future. But I think Russia is still like a really important actor um, and can have like an impact on maritime security in the region. I think we should really pay attention to the Iran nuclear deal. If Russia derails the re-establishment of that deal, that could have like really major negative implication on maritime security uh, in the Western Indian Ocean, right? You know, after all, like the Iranian or suspected Iranian attacks on shipping in the region in 2018 were part of the response to Trump administration's uh, pressure tactics and sanctions against Iran. If Russia managed to undermine the deal, it could have really negative implications for maritime security. I think another thing to really watch out for is food. Russia and Ukraine uh, are like, I think, 30% of the global wheat exports come from these two countries. Uh, at the moment, already, food prices are increasing all over the world. And plus, of course, oil prices and energy prices more, more, more generally. Many countries in the region already face food shortages, right? That's brings of famine, basically. And, you know, especially like countries like Somalia and Yemen. If they are now faced with food shortages and uh, you know, increasing price for oil and gas, this could lead to more instability, right? And if there's more instability in these countries, this could have like really negative impact on maritime security, right? If you know, piracy, you know, spillover of conflicts into the regional waters and all kinds of other issues, right? So this, I think, is really something that we have to watch out for, right? So it's about Russian Navy, no, 
Russian diplomatic efforts, yes, food prices, big problem. Very clear, thank you. This was a fascinating talk, but that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank my guests, Christian Berger and Jan Strockberger. Where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Thank you for today's conversation. That was very enjoyable. I'd like to all invite you to, to read the article, uh, visit uh, the website of Safe Seas at uh, safeseas.net, where you'll find this study, but also uh, many other interesting studies on maritime security in the Western Indian Ocean, the Gulf of Guinea, and the broader Indo-Pacific. We'll keep on working on the militarization dilemma as it is quite uh, important. And part of our research is indeed also to look into the importance of institutions in the Indo-Pacific. So more to follow there. Thank you for today. Thanks a lot. And you, Jen? Um, yeah, first of all, thank you so much for, for having us here. This was a really, really fascinating co uh, conversation. Yeah, I'm working with, with Christian in the next couple of uh, months on this uh, paper on broader uh, Indo-Pacific and security institutions. Uh, but we're also working on a new project on ocean governance more generally um, that, you know, we hope will kick off uh, uh, very soon. So there will be lots of stuff coming out of us on uh, maritime security, maritime competition, open, uh, ocean governance. And especially on like, you know, what kind of institutions we need to better govern the oceans in the contemporary challenging times that we are facing. Thanks a lot again. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.